Hello and welcome to Dialogue, the Diapoint podcast. I'm your host, Pam Durant. I am very excited about today's show and the upcoming shows that we have. We are discussing a very important topic, um, which is the use of continuous glucose monitors or CGMs in people with and people without diabetes. So if you're interested in tech or monitoring devices or health and fitness or diabetes, you've probably noticed in the last year, starting maybe even slightly two years ago, you've seen some wearable devices come out that are monitoring the blood sugar in people that do not have diabetes and they're being marketed as a device to help you perform better for sports. And for people in the, in the world of diabetes, this does raise some questions. Um, and we're, we're going to discuss this topic with a few different experts and people. And, and we're not here to say at Diapoint, you know, we try to be agnostic and we're not here to say there is a right or wrong. Uh, me as the, the mother of a child with type one diabetes, I have some opinions about it, but I'm also very curious about it. So whenever we don't understand something or maybe slightly disagree with it, I, I'll, I'll have my own conclusions about it, but I'm also quite curious about it to try to understand it more. So today we're going to start doing that. And I have two wonderful experts on the show. I have Dr. Nandu, a pediatric endocrinologist that was working in Dubai. I also have Michael Matavanov. Uh, who is living in Dubai, and he has type 1 diabetes. So Dr. Nandu has worked as a clinician for over 30 years, and always with a focus on innovation and excellence. He came to Dubai in August of 2017. So he just passed a big anniversary there for his time in Dubai, and he established the pediatric Diabetes, Endocrinology, and Weight Management Services at Al Jalila Children's Hospital. He has significant experience in the UK, which he used to develop the services in conjunction with medical, nursing, pharmacy, RCM, and his administrative colleagues. He now leads a very strong multidisciplinary diabetes team comprising of medical, nursing, diabetic, and psychology um, colleagues. The service embraces technology with all patients and they use glucose monitors and they also have several of their patients on insulin pumps. So not only has he studied this, he has quite a lot of hands-on experience and he's, he's seen many, many children and people with diabetes. He also introduced something called the arginine test, which is a low-cost, safe and effective test for growth hormone deficiency and brought in the bone expert radiology system, which provides patient with instant bone age results, greatly facilitating clinical management. In weight management, he's introduced use of body composition analysis to aid in the diagnosis and management of this group. And also Dr. Nandu has a significant interest and he teaches at a a wide range of audiences um, as he was appointed adjunct professor at of pediatrics at Mohammed bin Rashid University back in April 2019. He's a distinguished pediatric endocrinologist with a major interest in growth, which formed the centerpiece of his clinical research, culminating in three major publications in leading journals. As a consultant, 
He's maintained his research interest, establishing a pediatric clinical research team, and he's delivered several multi-center clinical trials. He was also chief investigator for two major international randomized control trials involving nearly 700 children worldwide, which led to the approval of insulin uh, detimer and degludec in children. He continues to publish and present widely, and he has significant publica- a significant publication record. He's clearly an expert, and I'm so happy that he is here to talk to us about CGMs, all things diabetes, and how our body is using blood sugar and insulin. We also have with us Michael, who is, like I said, he's living with type 1 diabetes, and he's 25 years old. He's from Australia. He was diagnosed when he was about eight years old, and he is using an insulin pump, and that he has to change the insertion site every three days. Um, he's also using a continuous glucose monitor. So he's got firsthand experience with diabetes, using glucose monitors, and he's working as a personal trainer. Um, if you were listening in season two, we had an episode um, with Michael where he shared more of his diagnosis story and, and more information about his life with diabetes, which was really, really interesting and so helpful. Um, he's also worked at other places in Dubai, um, in, in a lot of the F and B industry as well. And he's very interested in football and meditation, um, loves reading self-help books. And he also volunteers with a, a lot of children of determination He's just a lovely human being all the way and way around. His goal in life is to help as many people as possible to realize their full potential and achieve their goals and to help them be happy. And, oh, he also loves collecting vintage football shirts and unique trainers. So I will just move on to the show right now because I could continue to go on and talk about how excited I am to have these guests here, but let's get to the show and the conversation about the use of continuous glucose monitors. Okay. Hello, Michael and Dr. Nandu. Thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. And as we've been been talking a bit before um, we were meeting today, we would like to have a really detailed discussion to unpack the topic of continuous glucose monitor usage in people with and without diabetes, because it's a growing trend in the market um, everywhere, not just here in the UAE or not just in the GCC. I see people in the US talking about it and people are taking notice of it. And what, what that really means, is it useful? Is it helpful? This whole discussion came about when Michael was on the show last season, and that particular day, a popular radio personality in Dubai shared a video of him using a CGM to check his blood sugar. And he does not have diabetes, I don't think so, type 1 or type 2. And in the video, in his words, I'm kind of sub-quoting, he's like, oh, let me check and see if what I ate for breakfast was, was okay. Um, so that's kind of how he was using it. Of course, it was just a few seconds. So we don't have any real insight to what's going on, how it's being used or anything like this. But I think it's important for people with diabetes to understand, of course, how their blood sugar affects exercise. But it's also important for people without diabetes to understand 
what is happening to insulin, to your body, to your blood sugar. And if you choose to purchase one of these devices, what you will get out of it, or how can you maximize its potential for you? Or, or is it even useful? These are, these are a lot of the questions that I have. So with that, having said all of that, Dr. Nando, I would like to start by asking you, can you please explain to us what is happening in our bodies biologically when we exercise with and without diabetes? So in exercise, our muscles are using glucose, uh, primarily glucose. And um, actually to get glucose into cells, uh, you need insulin. So you need insulin on board for exercise. And that's true with or without diabetes. And um, when uh, the glucose unlocks the door, rather the insulin unlocks the door, uh, the glucose can get into the cell um, where it can be used by the muscle tissue. Now, muscle metabolism is not 100% efficient. So you do generate some um, non-aerobic uh, substrates, things like lactate and uh, certain other uh, chemicals. But so it's not 100% efficient, it doesn't 100% rely on glucose, but it mainly relies on glucose. Um, and um, so this is why um, the process of exercising uh, is helping your body if you have diabetes, because you're using glucose without insulin, or at least with only a small amount of insulin, just enough to unlock that door. Uh, and the glucose is being used as a fuel for the muscle. Now, other tissues like your brain that can take glucose with or without insulin, but muscle absolutely needs insulin with or without diabetes. Hmm. Now, some of those uh, sub, those uh, chemicals that are generated by glucose metabolism are, are passed out into the blood and um, sort of re-energized, if you like, by the liver, something called the Cori cycle, um, and uh, generated, generate more fuel so you can actually continue to exercise. Uh, and so humans have a remarkable capacity for endurance exercise, although not perhaps in my case, but uh, uh, you know, people can do remarkable uh, endurance feats like running marathons. I don't know if Michael's a marathon runner. He looks like he might be a bit of an exercise fiend. Marathon so, runner, no. <laughs> <laughs> I breathe again. So, um, and marathon runners will know the point where they get to this sort of uh, area of real difficulty around 18 miles uh, of the 26-mile run. Uh, where they simply run out of steam. And this is where you're getting this sort of critical shortage of energy. And this is when we're actually calling on those other uh, chemicals that muscle can use. Uh, but in general, um, muscular activity requires glucose and insulin. So that's the bottom line. You need both uh, for exercise. Yeah. And marathon running, they call that the wall. In my 20s, I ran a marathon and oh. it was like the best and worst day of my life. You know, <laughs> like it's it's kind of like childbirth. They say you forget the pain, <laughs> but uh, I absolutely hit the wall. And that's like a very long story for another day. <laughs> and you're like, oh, yeah, OK, let's see. But you do. And that's that's where the mental digging deep comes in. I do think everyone has like a marathon or whatever that ultra sport of their choice or whatever the big goal is of their choice. So I don't know, Dr. Nandu, maybe you and I can start training for another marathon. As I said, I wouldn't do it again, but <laughs> if, if you're in, I'll do it with you. Yes. Well, 
Mm, we'll see. Okay, maybe not. So having said all of that, and then Michael, because you're a personal trainer and you're exercising and you see all of these effects happening, can you tell us from a diabetes perspective, how difficult is it to manage your blood sugar when you're exercising? When you're exercising, you always have to, for me, you always have to prepare for the worst. So first thing I would say is make sure your blood sugar is at a good place before you even start exercising. I I did a, a Instagram reel a few weeks ago saying, you know, when you're exercising, where should your blood sugar be? And what you should do to make sure that you're having like a safe session at the gym. And for me, first thing, making sure that your blood sugar is at a good level so that you're prepared for whatever exercise you're doing, weightlifting, cardio, a sport like football, basketball, whatever you're playing. So for me, 30 minutes before you're actually going to start training, test your blood sugar so that if it's too high or too low, you then give yourself time to, to fix it. Because um, the worst thing is, is, you know, if you're not checking your blood and you turn up to the gym or you turn up to a, to a sporting event or whatever and your blood sugar is low or your blood sugar is high and you can't compete or you can't um, exercise, especially for someone like me who's a personal trainer who's on sometimes a very tight schedule. If, if I want to train in that certain time, time frame, and I can't because I'm low or because I'm high, then that session is just wasted. Secondly, make sure you're monitoring the set your blood sugar during the session. If your blood sugar is good before you start the session, don't just presume, okay, for the next hour or 90 minutes, it's going to be fine. Keep checking your blood sugar, see how your body feels. And then even afterwards, keep monitoring your blood sugar. Because for me, I'll, I'll, if, if I don't reduce my basil or if I don't have something to eat, because I train in the evenings. So if I don't have something before I go to bed or if I don't reduce my basil, 100% my blood sugar around 2 a.m., 3 a.m., sometimes 4 a.m. will be low. So again, check your blood sugar before, during, and after. Mm-hmm. For sure. And because you were diagnosed at eight years old, how long, I mean, of course at, at eight, you're not quite managing everything independently. And especially when it's all so new, how many years or how long would you say, did it take you to get to a point where you really understood it and really felt, I mean, of course you'll, you can still have highs and lows and things like that, but until you really got to that point of maybe not missing as many workouts or having so many highs and lows during a session. I would, say, I would say around my mid-teens. And this is also in regards to kind of when my parents let me do things on my own. Because I was diagnosed at such a young age, like I was eight when I was diagnosed, I couldn't inject myself. Um, you know, if my blood sugar was low, my mum would go get me like something to eat or drink or, you know, I... I wasn't there like, you know, eight, nine years old, you know, um, calculating how much carbohydrates I'm eating. You know, my mom did that. Then she did the calculations and she would um, she would give me the right amount of insulin. I would say around my mid-teens, maybe like 
14, 15 was when I really kind of just like, and I think my, my parents as well, they kind of allowed me to do things on my own, which was probably scary for them because, you know, you, you're scared for, for your child, especially when they have type 1 diabetes. You don't know how they're going to react, how, you know, when their blood sugar is low, are they going to wake up? If their blood sugar is high, are they going to give themselves insulin or just be lazy and forget about it? Um, so I would say around 15 was when I started doing things on my own. Still, there was like errors and I was making mistakes and, and you know, but that's just life. That's just how, you, how you're supposed to deal with it. Learn. That, yeah. So. As a parent, I can tell you it is for sure scary, mm-hmm. but probably, I guess your mom probably maybe experienced the same thing. When I let go and he starts doing it himself, he does a really great job. If I'm there and he knows I'm going to do it. And he even said to me last week, he's like, but mom, you're here. Of course, I'm not going to do it. I know you got it. <laughs> so <laughs> I was like, okay, I'm out. I'm done. Uh, so if, you know, if for anything, I guess in children, if you want them to learn something, especially teens, they usually, they will step up to the occasion, you know, if we, we teach them what to do. And, and then by then you probably didn't even need to calculate carbs. You could just eyeball it or. Oh, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You miss out on all that fun math and calculation and science that Dr. Nandu is teaching the parents of, you know, the, the children that he sees. And, and then you just become kind of natural experts at it. Mm-hmm. So what is then, and we know, you know, all people with diabetes are different, but Dr. Nandu clinically, what is a good blood sugar for someone with diabetes? And is it different? Like if you have type one or type two diabetes, what is a good number to start exercising on? Uh, In general, I recommend, and it does depend as you imply, you know, what the exercise is, as Michael said also. Uh, But in general, as a rule of thumb, I'd say 120 to 180 or maybe 200 is a reasonable starting point. Uh, I'd be interested to know what Michael does actually, but Um, you know that during the exercise, your glucose is going to drop. So you have to be above um, the, you know, normally we say 70 or 80 to 180 uh, as our desirable range. But uh, if you're going to exercise, your glucose will drop. So you need to budget for that. You need to have a little bit of a safety margin. And if your glucose is below 120, then you need to eat uh, some extra carbs uh, to get your glucose up. Not too many. You're not trying to get a glucose of 300, but... um, uh, uh, some carbs to get up there. And actually, depending on the intensity of the exercise, if you're a really high performance athlete, you can need stupendous amounts of carbs. I mean, I, you know, I had professional athletes in the UK um, who came to see me and, and they would have a, an ins- a glucose requirement of one gram of carbohydrate per kilo per hour of exercise. So, um, you know, this is a big amount of carbohydrate and you've got to really think carefully about how to consume that much. Otherwise, you'll have bellyache and diarrhea. Yeah. So so it's actually a lot of careful planning if you're at very high performance level. Uh, and often I think that's where the performance athletes really need the help of uh, specialist dietitians. Uh, sure. And, uh, it's hard yeah. to consume that many carbs that are healthy, actually. I would find like, so you need to really understand what you're eating. I don't think it's necessarily going to be healthy if you're to get that volume of Mm. carbs in. Um, I mean, for those, you know, high intensity sports, I think, you know, for your regular 
you know, soccer at, uh, at school, it's not going to be quite as intense. But in general, and I'd be interested to know what Michael thinks, I would say 120 to 180 oh. as a starting point. And if you're above 180 to 200, uh, then you need insulin to bring your glucose down into target. Because if you exercise and you're insulin deficient, you can potentially push yourself into a really bad situation, making ketones and, and getting unwell. Michael, what what yeah. do you um, in answer to that question? What what is your kind of desirable? I, I agree question? with um, with Doctor Nandu. I I would I feel safer being on the higher side. Um, when I say higher side, again, I mean like 160, 170, because then at least I feel you know like safe enough that okay, if I am going to train, because if you're you know a little bit lower, like even if I'm like you know. 120 110 100 i still wouldn't feel safe exercising because i know that within 10 minutes 15 minutes it could start dropping um so yeah so i would rather be around you know 150 160 170 but also um when your blood sugar is high i almost forgot what i was going to say when your blood sugar is high before you start training something that i do if if your blood sugar is high and it's not going up anymore like on the freestyle libras um they have the arrows that go like this or like this so you can see if your blood sugar is like really spiking up or if it's just staying high if your blood sugar is just staying high and you give yourself a correction before you exercise what i do is i don't give the full correction because i know that with the exercise and the correction i'm going to spike down really really quickly so my recommendation is like do 50 percent 60% of what it what it recommends and then you can go exercise. Yeah, that's similar to what we do too. If Aaron is going to exercise or play sports and he's around 120, I get a little uncomfortable and nervous. There's been times it surprised me, but yeah. Well, one, 120 is is like the, you know, if you're exercising, 120 is the 70, you know, it's it's the absolute mm-hmm. lower limit of what we're recommending. So yeah. I think it's fine if you prefer to be a little bit higher, that's not a bad thing, as long as you're in control overall. Yeah. So and exercise is a very good strategy for, for managing high glucose, provided it's not crazy high. So it's often a good alternative to having extra insulin and drinking plenty of fluid to keep you hydrated, of course. Mm-hmm. Do- Dr. Nandu, I actually have a question for you, because even I'm not 100% sure how to answer this sometimes, and maybe I should, because... I have been a diabetic for such a long time, but a lot of my colleagues or just friends who are personal trainers as well, they understand that with a diabetic, it's dangerous to, to train when your blood sugar is low. But why is it dangerous to train when your blood sugar is high? So um, actually, that's a very good question, Michael. It depends why your glucose is high. So if your glucose is high because you're lacking insulin, then the pouring out of stress hormones that goes with the exercise drives up your glucose um, and you cannot actually use the glucose because you don't have that insulin to unlock the the key to your muscles. So you actually then start uh, getting um, inefficient um, metabolism and you start making ketones. And so you can actually push yourself into ketoacidosis if you exercise at uh, high glucose levels when you are lacking in insulin. If you know you definitely have enough insulin on board 
and you know your your pump is working or your you know you definitely had your insulin shot um, then you can try to exercise with high glucose but you're simply not going to perform very well i'm sure you've noticed that if your glucose is high and you just go on and do it anyway that actually yeah. you're you're less good at the exercise so so in general for performance it's better to have a good glucose i mean i, I absolutely fine you know 160 180 it's not a problem but um but if your glucose is 250 probably you should be thinking about well why is it 250 you know um is exercise going to make me unwell so if you've got insulin on board you're safe but uh, that's the key question that's a really good question i'm glad you asked that Mm. excellent No, (laughs) no it's good the other day you know, I don't talk about my son's stuff too much, but he's a typical teenager. He didn't feel like walking the dog. He's like, oh, but my, my blood sugar's too high to exercise. I'm like, dude, it's not exercise. It's walking the dog. Wow. It's probably going to help. And he, he's I've never had, thought of that excuse. I could have never thought of that. So uh, yeah, I know. I was going to ask you, Michael, if you ever use that one, because <laughs> I was really clear about it at school when, you know, if Aaron's blood sugar was at a certain level, because I didn't have and still we don't have a cgm where we can share the data and i can see it to say is this good or bad and they couldn't always call every time so mm. you know we just put that threshold i think it was if it was above 250 he shouldn't really participate in in sports because also with small children they can run you know things can change really quickly but um but yeah so now he figured out he's clever yeah. i'm not saying you're not like i'm sure your mom's heard you know a lot of things when you were younger too but no, i just Sorry, mom, can't can't empty the dishwasher. My blood sugar's high. Sorry, mom, can't empty the bins. My blood sugar's high. Okay, young teens and adolescent (laughs) children with diabetes, if you are listening with your parents right now, don't do it. Your parents will will know what you're Don't do it. Don't do it. Your secret's out. (laughs) (laughs) So we talked about, you know, clearly people exercising with diabetes and people that might be listening that are using CGMs and they don't have diabetes up until this point, they are probably thinking, Oh my goodness, I need to go get my blood sugar to be 160, but they have a functioning pancreas. Yeah. So that is not, I assume Dr. Nanda, correct me if wrong, I'm wrong, but not likely going to happen. No. So you, if you have, uh, if you don't have diabetes, your metabolism is normal. I mean, there can be situations when it's not completely normal, uh, then you should have no problems with exercising. You, so we make glucose in the liver and the kidneys to a certain extent. Um, so uh, we can actually make glucose in real time as we need it, depending on the nature of the exercise you're doing. Um, uh, so it's not a problem you don't have to think that, oh, gosh, my glucose will fall during exercise. It will go down a little bit, actually, but not to a significant extent. You're not going to become severely hypoglycemic. Uh, I mean, uh, yeah, so if you were to check the glucose level of marathon runners as they, as they breast the tape at the end of that horrible 26 miles, uh, then you would find quite a few of them with glucose levels in their 50s and 60s. But it's not a dangerous low level. So. Yeah, considering you just ran a marathon and if you're, you know, if you weren't eating during that time or, yeah, there's a lot of different things that can happen. So then just direct question, wearing a CGM 
if you do not have diabetes to follow, track your health and sports and different things, is it useful? Uh, so I think there are two situations to consider. So one is the performance athlete who's just wanting to see how, you know, particular foods affect them and how that correlates with other aspects of their performance. And so I think most high-powered athletes nowadays, you know, anyone in an Olympic training squad will be having, you know, we're wearing continuous glucose monitors. I mean, professional cycling has banned the wearing of con continuous glucose monitors because it sees it as an unfair performance advantage um, because it does help you if you know your glucose and what you need and at the time you need it, you, it can help you. And the other situation I would say um, is that it could be useful is if you have health issues and that you, you know, potentially may have prediabetes or you know, some concerning symptoms like you know, severe fatigue two or three hours after eating and you're thinking, well, am I getting low blood sugar? So there are situations, and actually as a diagnostic tool for type 2 diabetes, it's really excellent. I mean, the problem is it's relatively costly compared with the, the doctor ordering a blood test. But actually, if you're using, you know, the, the cheapest CGM that I have access to is the Freestyle Libra, uh, and uh, and that's 250 dirhams in uh, UAE. Uh, and um, uh, But that gives me two weeks of glucose information, which is much richer than a single fasting glucose or random glucose Um or uh, an HbA1c test. So actually, it's been the preferred method for diagnosing cystic fibrosis-related diabetes in the UK, at any rate, for some years. Uh, and it's finding increasing use in diagnosis of type 2 diabetes, which is easily missed. You know, if you only go by the HbA1c criteria, for example, then you will miss cases of, of diabetes. So I, I think if you're seeing glucose spikes over 200, that should be uh, an alarm mm. button that you, you're developing diabetes. And is if you see a glucose spike over 200, are there any other, like, what if it's like 180 or over 150 or something like this? Would that be alarming? Uh, uh, not Well, I think a single occasion is all right, as if you're seeing a repeated pattern of that. I mean, so you're definitely, if you're seeing consistently high glucose peaks, um, you know, 160, 180, then that potentially does correlate with pre-diabetes and indicates you may be at risk of developing diabetes. So um, it, it's, it does depend. There are certain factors, um, you know, if, for example, um, uh, you're very stressed, that can push up your glucose temporarily. We call it stress hyperglycemia, and it's nothing to do with diabetes. So just because you've got a single you know, high glucose level when you were ill with your asthma attack in the emergency department doesn't mean that you have diabetes or that you're going to get it. Um, but uh, if you're seeing a repeated pattern of, of glucose levels in this upper range below 200, then you probably are uh, needing to uh, think about whether you're at risk of developing diabetes and uh, yeah. maybe take some positive steps uh, okay. to help yourself. Okay, that that's very helpful. And also on a personal level, a few months ago, before summer, my husband went for a checkup and his the, he, they told him his fasting blood sugar was on the higher side. And just they look at fasting blood sugar one day and they say, oh, you have prediabetes. I'm not sure if they looked at his A1C as well. Um, and I told him, I said, go get a Libre. 
because I didn't believe with as much exercise, he's, I mean, of course you can be insulin resistant at any time and no matter, you know, what level of health you are, things can happen um, genetically, but he swims a lot. He eats fairly okay at home. I try to be more kind of plant-based and we have healthy things. Maybe he's slipping into the occasional Turkish kebab place (laughs) when, when I'm not there, which is true because I don't like meat. So yeah. So, you know, there's that, but I said, go put on, you know, a a Libre and let's, let's look. And it didn't have any of these highs or different things like this. And so I think a lot of unsuspecting people, not with that diagnosis, but now that CGMs are being marketed for, you know, just kind of the general health use would put it on and do the same thing that happened to him. So one morning he did a pretty strenuous work, uh, weight workout. And he came to me after to show me the number. And he says, oh my goodness, like it's high. I said, what kind of workout did you do? And he lifted a lot of weights. And I said, well, yeah, I think it's it's supposed to do that. And it wasn't like 200 high. It was like, you know, maybe 120 or something like this. And I said, just wait. It, it's your pancreas is probably working and it's going to go down. I said, I'm no doctor. You can take this back and ask your doctor, but it, it can be really misleading for people using a CGM just as like a wearable, like, like I'm not, if I put one on my, so I guess my question is if I put one on me, I'm not going to the Olympics. I pretty sure I'm not pre-diabetic or, you know, pre-type two or insulin resistant. Is it, is it going to help me exercise better? It's purely as a matter of interest. I, I think, you know, you can do the experiment. What happens if I, you know, chug half a liter of Coke, you know, what, what happens, you know, if you, so if you really wanted to explore, you know, what's happening or what can happen, then that's one way of finding out. I I think, um, you know, the value that adds is, is probably limited. I think it's more of, uh, you know, a lifestyle choice then, isn't it to to use it. Mm -hmm. But I think uh, certainly for people who do, you know, serious exercise, it's really valuable. Uh, but I'm less, uh, uh, what can I say? I'm less convinced of its general uh, uh, use, but I mean, there may be some specific groups, you know, the person who's having recurrent low blood sugars, for example, uh-huh. uh, thinks they are, then yes, that's a good use. So it's not going to be harmful. Try it for two weeks, see what happens. For sure. Um, for sure. So, Michael, I want to ask you this question because living with diabetes and all of its challenges, and also having special insight into the world of exercise, health, and nutrition, um, what are what are your some of your thoughts on on this sudden trend of having it as a casual wearable? I was just thinking about it now when you guys were saying, you know. Um, People are checking their blood sugar and they're not diabetic and, you know, their blood sugar is a little bit high and it's, you know, 170, 180. I can't help but think if you're not a diabetic and you're deciding to wear one of these glucose measuring devices, would that not bring more stress to your life? Because if Mm. you're, if, if for most of your life, you don't check your blood sugar on a daily basis, like an, on average, I check my blood sugar between five and eight times a day, sometimes more, sometimes less, just depending on how you are. 
if you're not a type one diabetic or type two, and you're you're not used to checking your blood sugar on a daily basis, and then suddenly you see these freestyle levers and the other um, measuring devices out there, and you start wearing it, and you start checking your blood sugar like you know three times, four times, five times after exercise, before exercise, after a stressful meeting, after a walk, after a run, whatever. And you check your blood sugar and you just went for a run and it's 170, 180. You must be freaking out, being like, oh my gosh, it's it's high. What do I do? What do I do? And if you do that on like a daily basis, that must cause you more stress. So I, I, I don't understand why you'd want to do that. But let me ask you my question, Michael. If you had known that you were going to get diabetes, would you have wanted to know sooner? Of course, yes. So that's the thing. So if you're really hitting the 170, uh, then that's, you know, so with exercise, yeah, 140, 150, uh, I can accept. But I think if you're up at that, you know, 170, 180, then probably you do need to be taking active, positive steps to avoid or at least to prepare for what's coming so on a regular basis then yeah yeah. and now a word from our sponsor this episode of dialogue the diapoint podcast is brought to you by diapointshop.com visit diapointshop.com to find all your needs for diabetes accessories health and lifestyle products and coaching support we also have some really great vitamins and supplements and also some other fun wellness things like essential oils and skincare, other things in nutrition. You can also join our community and stay up to date on our latest events. And we're now very happy to also share that the shop is now available in Arabic. So if you know someone that might like to do their shopping online in Arabic, please send them to diapointshop.com slash AR. Now back to the show. I never thought about the stress part of it, but there was a time, I don't know if I told you the story before, Michael, where it was evening in winter in Dubai, I was sitting outside. So that's how I know it was winter and I was eating, I had some dragon fruit and something, yogurt, and I think it was a fruit yogurt. So there's a little bit of, you know, sweetness and carb to it. And then I think just for fun, I like put some scoop of ice cream on top of it. And then probably not a direct result, maybe from eating that, but maybe how I ate that day or something, I started to feel a little shaky. I was like, this is strange. This doesn't feel normal. So I went and got my son's glucose meter and I checked my blood sugar and I was like 140 or 160. I can't remember. It was an even number, but I was seriously stressed out. I was so stressed. Because I mean, one, you start thinking of life and the whole irony and how cruel is that, you know, that, or, or is it, or then will my, my son feel, you know, better because he's got another person in the family that could be diabetic, you know, all these crazy different things going through my head. Like I'm overthinking everything. I didn't sleep that night. So your point about stress, like if I were to wear one, I would probably be you know, suddenly really worried about it. I knew I had a checkup coming up with my doctor, so I didn't stress about it after the first 12 hours, but I, I lost a whole night of sleep over it. How, how long was your blood sugar high for? 
I didn't, I didn't check it again after, honestly, I checked it again to make sure that the reading was right. I checked it on another finger and it was really close. There wasn't a big margin of error, but monitoring stresses me out this summer. I dropped my smartwatch. I don't care how many steps I take. I mean, I do. And I don't like if I'm training, maybe I need to, but I was like, you know what? I'm done. Like having, I started wearing, wearing a watch again, even just because a trainer told me like, I need to, um, you know, count my steps and he was, you know, monitoring everything and food. And I hate logging food. It's, it's a lot of work. So you have such a valid point of the stress and everything that comes with that, that diabetes is not easy. I have a question for Dr. Nandu, actually, just for, for a non-diabetic, because I haven't, I have been a diabetic for most of my life. Just a general question. When a non-diabetic eats, like a normal meal, breakfast, lunch, dinner, let's say their blood sugar is normal, it's 90, it's 80, it's 100, whatever. And then let's say they have a really high carb meal. Like let's say someone has a whole pizza and apple juice or something or Coca-Cola or something. If they were to then check their blood sugar, how long would it take for their blood sugar to to rise and then to fall back down again? So... This is someone without diabetes. That's right. Yeah. You'd, you'd expect the glucose to maximum, I would say, 90 minutes to two hours. I mean, maybe if you had a huge pizza, you might stretch that out a bit to three or four hours. But it, uh, just because of the fat and the protein content tends to extend the period of time it takes to absorb all the goodness from your pizza. But um Great hypo treatment, by the way, but uh, well, hypo protection after your exercise. But uh, so pizza night that should be after your uh, after your run, Michael. But um, I think you really not expect a, a large excursion or for long. So I'd be thinking max glucose, you know, one fifty, maybe one sixty at a pinch. If you had had that coke we were talking about earlier, but um, if uh, you know, not for long, not for long. It will come back down by itself because your own pancreas can make huge amounts of insulin, uh, provided you don't have diabetes. Mm. That's so fascinating. I did check. I remember now, Michael, I did check my blood sugar after, but I checked it the morning after and oh, and okay. it was, you know, it was fine. I knew that if I kept checking, I would be really obsessing. So I was telling myself like not check, do other things to distract myself. So have you seen anyone wearing these devices, Michael, in, in any of the gyms that you go to that uh, on people that I have, don't have I've diabetes? Seen it. Um, all of them have been diabetic except for one. Mm. Um, I'm not sure if I told you um, maybe last time we spoke, but I went to um, I went to Oman earlier this year during Ramadan and um, and I went to the ho- the hotel gym. And I was the only one in the gym. Then this guy came in and he, he looked um, um, Arab. I think I didn't ask him where he was from. And he was wearing a freestyle Libra. And every time I see one, I get kind of excited because I'm like, oh, fellow cool. diabetic, you know, yeah. how long have you had it for? How are you managing it? All these questions, you know. And he was like, oh, no, I'm not a, di- I'm not a type 1 diabetic. I just wear it just to check my blood sugar. Um, readings and I was like oh okay 
And I was like, you know, have you noticed anything strange, anything peculiar? And he was like, yeah, um, every time he says he plays tennis a lot. And he says every time he plays tennis, um, like an hour after or something, his blood sugar spikes up and it goes really, really high. And when someone says really, really high, my mind's going like 250, 300, like crazy. And I'm like, oh my gosh, that's really, you know, unusual. And I was like, how high do you go? And he was like, oh, one time I went to 158. (laughs) Oh, wow. And I said to him, I was like, you know, that's not bad. You know, like that's still like within range. And he was like, yeah, but I just, I I needed to see. So I like, I check it every time now. And I'm like, okay. So that, that kind of, I was like almost in shock, like, why do you need to again dr nandu's rate raised a really good point and now every time i say it, i'm gonna think you know maybe you know if i if if i knew i was getting diabetes would i want to know earlier and that makes a lot of sense but still i was like very strange yeah i don't think a lot of the the, the marketing around the casual use of it is not find out if you have diabetes earlier i think it's great to to wear it to find out if you do. And considering the anticipated growth with type two and pre-diabetes for the future, a lot of us should, you know, try it, but it's not marketed in that way. It's, you know, like, Hey, it's the next kind of like cool thing. That is mm. so interesting. My son's yes, blood no, sugar no, spikes after tennis. That, that is really, yeah. Fascinating. And then you know, your excitement about seeing another person with type one, I get the same way this year on the beach. I saw two people. I saw a boy, a young boy and an an adult with Libre and you can't help, but like, you're not staring in that bad way. You're like, Oh my gosh, it's like one of us, right? Like someone that after years, when your child goes around and doesn't see anybody with diabetes and unfortunately it's growing and now you see more Mm -hmm. people, but Actually, today it was so interesting because um, one of the groups that I follow in social media, a mom put this kind of meme and it's like a Venn diagram of people, you know, that need diabetes and it's type one, type two, insulin resistant. And then there were like sports influencers, they called it in the meme, but they weren't even part of the Venn diagram. They were just out in a blob, not even like in a circle to make it like nice And, you know, which is a little bit harsh, but yes, there are some people doing it as like the influencer thing. And one of the comments under it, though, really broke my heart. She said, every time my my child sees one, they run up to this person thinking that they're type one like them, and then they're not. Mm -hmm. And they don't understand why this -hmm. person's wearing this device, but they don't need it really in that same way. And that's really heartbreaking. And then also other comments under it, people are struggling. It's not, they're not in this country. Um, A lot of them, I think are in the U S and other places and their insurance will not cover it Mm -hmm. and they cannot afford it. Well, it's incredibly short-sighted of insurance not to cover the Libra. So in the UK, um, which is not, you know, renowned for generosity in the National Health Service. The UK government covers uh, the Freestyle Libra and uh, other sensors, actually, the Dexcom 1, which is, you know, unique to Europe, 
um, for patients with uh, insulin-treated diabetes because it's cheaper. It costs the country less money if you're wearing a glucose sensor because you have less illness, so specifically less ketoacidosis, less hospitalizations with severe hypoglycemia, and you have better control, which means fewer complications in the long run. So, you know, if you really want to throw money away, then, you know, deny glucose sensors to patients with, with diabetes, because, you know, that's, that's, a, that's a real loser. You know, we've been used to doing that for, you know, all of the years of my career until glucose sensors became mainstream in about uh, 2012. And it's, it's the biggest single transformation in my life as a diabetes specialist was the, the low-cost, relatively accurate glucose sensors. Uh, and it's the most fundamental and important change in diabetes uh, that there's been in my, in my career. I mean, obviously, there will be more exciting and changes to come in the future, I hope, but you know, if I had to name one thing that is different from when I started out in diabetes in the 80s, that's really transformed life, it's got to be CGM. Oh, wow. Sorry. I, I can't imagine what it would have been like being a diabetic in the 80s or, <laughs> or 90s. Yeah, so in those days, the, the glucose meters were brutal. You know, you had to sort of chop the end of your finger off, bleed a pint onto a, a stick, Mop, mop off the gore with a big wad of cotton wool and hold up the stick and now gaze at the tube and compare the colours from your watering eyes from the agony of the stick uh, to see what your glucose is. So there'll be a little blue patch and a little yellow patch. And uh, so sometimes actually wow. in hospitals, I hear still that people refer to blood glucose test strips as BM strips. And that's a throwback to this first blood glucose meter that was widely used in hospitals back then uh, that's so it's, it's, that's blown my mind actually <laughs> never, never yeah, they, yeah. They, they were horrible in those days i can tell you that would be yeah needle technology is a thing like it probably would have been really painful back then too yeah, i so saw having sticks i think yeah that that's that's so challenging so, yeah, I agree. I would love to see insurance cover diabetes supplies. And, and I'm like the nerd mom that once several years ago, our insurance wasn't actually going to cover um, an insulin pump for my son. And I wrote a case study about why they would want to do that. But I also had kind of a case because they were they were denying it, although it was covered under the policy, medical equipment and everything was covered at that time in the policy we had, but they still weren't going to cover it because they saw that expense and they said, no way. And I said, this gives, you know, for all of these reasons, and you can go read all of these articles. And in the end, they covered it, but you shouldn't have to have a background in healthcare management and quality and all of these things to convince an insurance company to one, give your child a life-saving device, but also something that's going to, like you pointed out, improve their healthcare outcomes for the long-term and save the insurance company money. It just makes no sense. So yeah, yeah I would love to see that happen. Um, and so then, Michael, you said you saw like one person, you know, doing this one time. And do you have any, you know, other thoughts or how do you feel about it becoming more mainstream that they're continuously now, I see a lot more 
I just more than one heavily marketed to people. Mm. Well, yeah. Well, the one that um, that I shared with you, Pam, on on social media, their their whole thing is that it checks your blood sugar, but it also checks your metabolism rate. Mm. Which again, I was like, okay. <laughs> It's funny because you kind of, you kind of, I was really interested and I was like on the Instagram page and I'm not going to say the name. I'm not going to say, I don't even know who she is, but she was explaining what the usage is for and like why you should get it. And I was looking at her and I was listening and she didn't even seem convinced. She was kind of like not very confidently selling this device. And I was like, I was shocked. Again, I sent it to you, then you sent it to me. I think we both sent it to each other. Yeah, yeah, I think we did. We did. We're both watching <laughs> the same like, things. Scratching my head, being like, what did I just watch? And that's why we had, that's why it's so great that we have Dr. Nandu here to sort of, you know, give us more of an insight into why people might need to wear something like this if you're not a type 1 diabetic. But when I saw it the first time, I was just like, confused shocked like why would they need it yeah that's a good question yeah Yeah, that's exactly why i always say anyone like if they come to die point and they they have diabetes and they want help or support or coaching and i say who's your doctor and if they say i'm not going to one you you must go to one because even as many years as I've been managing it in my son. I'm no doctor. I can't explain the things that Dr. Nandu just explained to us and just, you know, gave us an amazing lesson in all things insulin and blood sugar. And then Michael, you're living with it for so many years. And even you asked Dr. Nandu questions. So this, this just, it doesn't show that like, we don't understand, but it shows how complex and how complicated it is. Mm -hmm. And oversimplifying it with it's a wearable it, yeah oversimplifying it with a oh, just like a wearable device making it look so easy and mm. then you know also making it look so cool yeah i think i think part of it is kind of that as well and especially if you get like celebrities or athletes or like that radio host here in in dubai who some people look up to if you're not a diabetic, they're going to be like, oh, he's got one. I want one, especially mm-hmm. kids or teenagers. Teenagers, yeah. it takes five seconds for them to see a celebrity wearing something or doing something. And because they idolize that person, they want it. Yeah. You know, without even knowing what it is or what it does, they just they just want it. And yeah, that's, that's true. Because all the cool kids are doing it. The, the key point is, if you're going to wear this, what are you going to do with the information? So if you're an athlete, I, I sort of get it. You know, I think there's a role there. But if you're not, and you don't have pre-diabetes or some other diagnostic uh, conundrum, then it's what's it doing for you, really? I mean, so Michael mentioned, you know, it gives you some idea about your speed of your metabolism. You probably know that by walking, you know, stepping onto the scales. I mean, I, I don't think it's a great revelation. Yeah. I wanted to ask you, Dr. Nandu, what is the indicator? Is is it really the scale? Then, <laughs> oh, what, well, what does that mean? Like, and I mean, you 
how fast are they are they saying that because uh, how fast your blood sugar will change or, or exactly it's, it's the rate of change of blood glucose during um so whatever activity exercise you're doing so then then you can then see you know hypothetically that relates to your how you're using the glucose but in practice i mean what does that okay so now you know and how does that help you i, I just think <laughs> You know, it's like non-information. Oh, look, the sky is blue. <laughs> so. Yeah, that. Well, there's a popular podcast in Australia I listen to, and with a guy with a PhD in nutrition, and he often has one of his friends, colleagues, that's a guest on who has type one, and I believe he's an exercise physiologist. And this is what they always highlight: you get all this data. But if you don't know what to do with that data, then it's it's totally useless, and you just are jabbing yourself with a device and yeah. you know trying to look cool. So and again, it just it kind of um, maybe not like the stress side, but also just like the financial side as well. You're you're spending more money on something that you don't really need, and then you're investing more time in something you don't really need. I mean. Uh, that's a good point. Again, the time that I love that point that you keep raising the stress and the time, because we always talk about so much time and how much time is wasted, like with people scanning social media or, you know, reading news online or whatever it is, we can really get caught up in something. And then this just becomes another one of those. It has the potential if you don't need it to manage your blood sugars and you have diabetes, then it becomes a potential to be one of those other kind of distractions that you're overly obsessed about. So yeah, and financially, insurance isn't going to cover it because it's a glamour device. I I, I don't I don't want to like say that in a like negative way, um, you know, necessarily. Yeah. But how can you justify to your insurance company to cover this? They're not they're not paying for it for people with diabetes in a lot of cases. So they're not going to start for others. That's true. Uh, so having said that. I don't have any more questions for you, Dr. Nandu, on this topic. Um, I really appreciate both of you coming here and, and sharing your thoughts and, and your expertise, Dr. Nandu, and, and your experience with it, Michael. Um, I do hope that the companies that are doing this, so a couple of things, the particular influencer that had the, the video, I actually made a comment under his video. And I said, you should get some children with type one in your studio so they can show you how it really works. <laughs> so I would love for that to happen. Like send maybe some, you know, eight-year-olds in there just to. And no one, no one, it. no one replied. No, his sidekick actually wrote like a smiley face or laughing or something um uh, under my comment so it was read by somebody but i mean there were, he gets so many thousands of comments on anything so you know that that came in and out yeah maybe i send like another email or something and say hey this this could, i think that could be a really interesting discussion just to you know raise more awareness for type 1 diabetes and how it's affecting children and you know the children are using and needing these devices and um this um, radio host, he, the company that I used to work for, the personal training company that I used to work for, he, he was like a part owner or, or mm. something. And we used to have to have his name on our t-shirt and on our hoodies. Oh, okay. He has, he has like a, um, a nutrition line 
you've probably seen it and like I've seen it. I've tasted it. Yeah, the, the nutrition, the the snacks, the snacks. Yeah, yeah. Had, like his name, like like on our sleeve. Ah. Like, so maybe you have maybe you have a better idea of how to well, access. I, well, I've um I we we never really saw him. He didn't really come to any meetings or anything, but he was part of the company. So. Yeah, he's there. I mean, he's quite a big personality. And if anything, you know, and if that one mom's wish for a long time. Yeah, he has. Even he's so popular. So a friend of mine from high school in the United States, she is a radio DJ. And she messaged me one day a couple of years back and said, have you ever heard of this guy? And I said, yeah, he's very popular here. They were even teaching about him in workshops in the U.S. because he has such a massive following and he's considered wow. to be very successful, like statistically and everything else. So, yeah. you know, he's definitely doing something right. He's we're you know, if you're out there listening, we're not saying you're like a bad person, but we just want to highlight this device and discuss it more and and learn learn more about it so he's definitely influential and not i think not just here in the uae but maybe even beyond we have no idea how far his influence goes and one thing that i'm also putting out there at the end of every episode um, that we do about this topic is for i don't know how i i don't know yet how many companies there are that are actually selling CGMs for people without diabetes or as exercise enhancers or wearable devices for exercise. But if you're familiar with the shoe brand that was Todd's and what Todd's did was when you buy one, they would donate one to someone in an underprivileged country. Oh yeah. This they're kind of like the, the slipper shoes. Exactly. No. Yeah, yeah. Kind of like the moccasin espadrille shoe. And That's there's true. also a company in the US that did that with eyeglasses. If you bought they were online eyeglass uh, store, and when you bought a pair of eyeglasses from them, they would send eyeglasses to countries where children had trouble accessing eyeglasses. Yeah, see, that makes sense. So for you companies that are out there. You got big investment and you're doing this. I would love more than anything to see sell one and donate one to someone somewhere in need that that has diabetes, particularly a child with diabetes that cannot access a continuous glucose monitor. It will help them immensely. Yeah, definitely. Because 250 dirhams for one device that lasts you two weeks. You add that up. That's that's not cheap. That's like a thousand. No, that's five hundred a month. Some know. people. Um, yeah. That's a minimum wage in some countries. Yeah, and exactly. with with a lot of the cu- countries that are struggling in um, in in the Middle East, you know they they can't access it. So I think it would be wonderful if they could figure out a way to even work with some of those companies and where they can you know, make it then cheaper the way they buy it from them to donate it. I think that would be wonderful. If if any outcome is coming from this, then I think that would be a beautiful one. Yeah. Ultimately, all healthcare costs are borne by the society in which you live, uh, whether it's directly or indirectly. And, you know, so it's much better to pay for upfront for something that helps you now to stop you getting complications and other problems that actually cost a fortune later. Um, it's better for society because you keep a 
productive person working. Uh, and it's better for healthcare because you keep that productive person out of hospital. I, I'm really um, just incredulous that the, the obvious benefits of CGM are not recognized and that patients can't access them uh, routinely through insurance. It's, uh, to my mind, it's, it's foolish and short-sighted and yeah. sacrificing the future of those patients who can't otherwise afford it. What do you think it will take to get it more recognized? Is there something that they're missing other than just looking at the short-term costs and economic case or what? Well, I think it really is short-sighted because even in the short term, you know, if you, so on average, um, so looking at um, uh, Europe, around uh, six to 8% of, of, uh, children with type 1 diabetes are admitted to hospital every year with diabetic ketoacidosis at least once. I mean, some are having more than one admission. A single admission with ketoacidosis will cost tens of thousands of dirhams. I mean, it's nothing in comparison, you know, to, to be giving them glucose sensors. Really, you, you don't have to save much in the way of admissions to hospital and serious complications and intensive care stays before you can pay for all of the the senses that uh, society needs. Mm. So it's very frustrating. I mean, even, as I say, even the UK, which was relatively late to the party, recognises that it's cheaper to use senses than not to use them. Uh, And this had been, you know, they'd already, you know, uh, free of, uh, uh, of charge for patients in Holland and France and uh, lately, uh, Australia has joined the party and other countries which have historically uh, been a little bit more reluctant. Uh, but, you know, even the UK is giving free sensors, uh, even though there's the proportion of patients with diabetes is so huge in the UK uh, because it saves money. It's mm. beneficial to society to do this. Yeah, that's amazing. I'm so excited, actually, for the citizens of the UK and also Australia, I know does that as well. They started a few years ago um, with children and I think it's just wonderful. So I hope others will learn from their actions and experience and, and follow. It will be amazing. So with those wise words, I think we will leave you. Thank you again, Dr. Nandu and Michael for joining me for this really interesting and I hope helpful discussion for those who are listening to make some sense of the CGM world. And I look forward to seeing you both again soon. Thank you so much. Thank you Thank very you. much. Um, Have a great day. Michael. Thank you. Nice to meet you, Dr. Nandu. Thank you. Thank you. So I just want to again, thank Dr. Nandu and Michael for both joining us. Um, it was a really deep discussion and Dr. Nandu really shed a lot of light on the biological aspects of how our body's working and using insulin, which is really great and important for all of us, whether you have diabetes or not. I think that's a really important um, thing to understand because one, like he pointed out, perhaps in the event that in the future you could become pre-diabetic or something else or have other things going on in your body, it's always good to understand how things work. And also Michael's perspective as someone living with diabetes and a personal trainer was also very, very valuable. I learned a lot, not only um, 
about the medical biological parts of it, but also different things about how we might consider this discussion and the use of CGMs in high performance athletes. Like the Olympics, I kind of suspected that they might be, you know, looking at these um, exercise sciences, incredible and amazing. And when you're trying to get the human body to do things and go places, it's not gone before. For sure, you need to look at all of these things. Uh, but also to, you know, look at it and use one for short term to just kind of check in on your overall health in general is not a bad idea. I think we've concluded from this episode, it may not be something that we want to or need to use over the long term if we don't have diabetes, but it could be a good personal experiment. Um, perhaps that's something that I would look at and consider in the future as an experiment. I thought about once wearing one more in solidarity, um, you know, for my son, not necessarily from the experimental part, but that is certainly interesting, I guess, if you don't have anyone with diabetes in your life. And the financial side, like, like I said, it can get really expensive as well. So, so thank you so much for joining this episode. We're going to continue this discussion because there are a lot of people that have a lot of opinions and there's a lot to unpack about it. So I hope you'll join me for the next episode where we'll continue to go a little bit deeper in the ins and outs of wearing continuous glucose monitors for people with diabetes and people without. Thank you so much. And I look forward to seeing you again soon. If you like the show and you like what you heard, please, please help us out by going to Apple podcasts and giving us a rating or follow the podcast on any of your favorite podcast platforms where you might be listening to us. It really helps us continue to do what we're doing and gets more people listening. So if you can just take a couple seconds and go do that, I would be most grateful. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful day.